So today we have, I know it's going to be just an interesting show, the way this goes. And I have an author. Um, he's also a psychotherapist and, a, and I would say a spiritualist. Um, but the reason why I'm having him on is because he wrote a book that just came out and it's called Slay Your Dragons with Compassion. And when I saw the title, I, it, it caught me, absolutely stopped me, gob smacked me, if you will. And uh, because the idea of slaying your dragons usually requires a lot of blood and guts and all that, but to do it with compassion, I'm so curious to find out how this conversation goes today. So I wanna welcome my guest, Malcolm Stern. Malcolm, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Susan. Pleasure to be with you. I am so curious. Now, this is just an aside that has probably nothing to do with anything, but the other reason why Slay Your Dragons with Compassion caught me is because I am uh, so involved, enamored with the Arthurian legend and, um, and I have a son and instead of playing with GI Joes, he had a sword and he was in the backyard slaying dragons. So that's also why this caught me. It was, it, it's kind of personal. So <clears throat> the reason why, my understanding is the reason why you wrote this book is because you had a, a life changing, dramatic uh, experience that you then had to heal yourself through it. And you are a psychotherapist, so you help others heal, right? So That's would you true. share a little bit about your story of what occurred and then we'll walk through the steps of how you personally healed because it, it, it's a phenomenal story. Okay, thank you. It is a phenomenal story and um, it, it, um, it spun around for me for years. Um, so in December 2000, 2014, my eldest daughter, Melissa, took her own life. And she'd been through a manic phase for quite a few months and then been quite depressed. And I'd seen a fair bit of her when she was manic, but not at all when she was depressed. Mm. And um, she'd withdrawn. And I've been told she was very, she was very brightly dressed and bright lipsticks and, you know, sort of really sort of like out there. And apparently someone said they felt like she'd lost all her color for that last six weeks of her life when she went into depression. And the other side of this bipolar or manic depression image is that when you get high you get really high yeah and you can be overpowering and you can be really difficult and, and i didn't find her easy in that time but when you hit, when you hit the low apparently we have no idea what that low is i've spoken to people who've been there and you know i felt depressed at times or or freaked out at times but not in a constant low where um, life felt like it was pure drudgery so I was running a, um, I've been running groups for about 35 years and I was running a group um, of, and a residential at the end of my one year course. So which is one weekend a month for a year and a four day residential at the end. And I was on day three of the four day residential when I heard from Melissa's mother and um, um, she left messages for me and I was, I was having a lunch break. And so I rang her back and she said, Melissa's not with us anymore. And I said, oh, where's she gone? And, and she said, no, she's not, she's not on earth anymore. And it, it didn't land in that moment. It was sort of like, it was shock and shock comes in in different ways. Sometimes it'll bowl us over and sometimes it'll just be, we've got some mechanism that stops it really landing. 
But I went back into the group and a friend of mine who was part of the group, who's also a psychotherapist, I said to him, David, this is, I've just heard this, this has just happened. Can you take over this afternoon session? So he took over the session and he started by telling people what had happened and he did a, a grief circle. And in that grief circle, he had the whole group, there were 16 people in the group, stand together. And then he said, those who've lost a parent step into the center and feel the feelings. So about half the people in the group stepped forward, they lost a parent or they lost two parents. Those who'd lost a close friend stepped forwards. Two or three people stepped forward into the group. Those who've lost a sibling stepped forward, one or two people stepped into the group. And those who've lost a child stepped forward. And in that moment, Wow, that's amazing and that's so powerful. And, and in witnessing in that moment, Malcolm, all these other people that had experienced a, a loss by a death, you know, of a loved one, did it, did it, did it help move the shock so you could experience or were you still in shock? Well, I was still in shock, but what happened is, and, and although, you know, as a group leader, I, I don't go in the center of my own circle. I don't use the space. I will occasionally share what's going on for me because it's relevant to what's happening in the center. Yes, I, I never take the space. But in that particular session, I immediately the whole group sort of said, it's your space. And, and it couldn't be anything else. It, I couldn't just function as a therapist in that. So it was my space. And David, who was my friend who was in the group, skillfully guided me into getting the support from the group. Um, which is an unknown, you know, for me to, to, to take that space. And um, I, I was met with such love and such compassion. It felt like the safest place on earth I could be. And we carried on through with that group for another day and a half till, till it was over. And, and then I went back and, uh, to London where my ex-wife was, who wasn't Melissa's mother, and my children. Now, interestingly, I tried to ring both my children when I'd heard about it. And my son always answers his phone, but somehow his phone was off and he'd, he turned his phone off at that moment. My daughter is, normally will respond immediately and she also didn't respond, but their mother got hold of them and she happened to be in London where they both were. And she said, you need to come here, so she, which was her mother's place. So they both went to her mum's place and she was able to tell them the news. And of course they were completely blown away. They adored their, she's a half sister, but they adored her. And so they were there for a day and a half until I got there at the end of, I decided to stay to the end of my group, even though someone offered to drive me to London. We were in um, Devon, but um, someone offered to drive me to London. But I, I actually felt like I needed the, the comfort and support before I went back into the world with this. And then I went and met with my children and my, and my ex-wife and we, um, we grieved together. And it was almost like it, it takes a long time, or it took me a long time for the grief to really land. So I went into psychotherapy. It was a waste of time. I was too cerebral about it. I went to suicide support groups, which were really great, actually. And um, I went to the Samaritans, which is a, an organization in the UK. I don't know if you've got it in the States as well. Yeah. Uh, but the Samaritans, and they did a suicide support group, which was six weeks. And, um, and what was great there is I got to hear from other, other people who'd lost children and other people who'd been bereaved in very similar ways and started to realize that there was some patterning. But it took me about, it took me till April, so it was about five months till I really moved it. What happened is that I'd had a very, very difficult relationship with Melissa's mother. And um, even to the, to the point where she, when she told me that Melissa had died, she said, and I don't want Amanda, who was my ex-wife, at a funeral. And I thought this was just her grief. But a few days later, she said, 
I don't want Amanda at the funeral. I said, if Amanda doesn't come, I'm not coming. You explain why Melissa's father's not there. So we, we were offered a bad footing. And, um, uh, and I felt really, she wouldn't let me speak at the funeral. She said, you speak in too many places. And it was, I felt muted. I felt silenced. I felt squashed. And I felt my fury and rage underneath it all. And I carried that fury and rage for another five months. And then there was a thing called Playback Theatre. It was a presentation around Melissa's life in London. And I went there and surprisingly, Melissa's mother was also there. And um, I realized when I saw her and there was this sort of snarling and sort of clashing of horns between us. I realized when I saw, saw her that I hated her. And I realized that that hate was costing me. I didn't realize this till afterwards, but I recognized that I needed to deal with that hate. So I, we had a dialogue and there was anger and there was hurt. And, and interestingly, both our sons were standing there helping hold the space for us, both boys in their sort of late twenties and they held the space. And, um, and then I sobbed in her arms. And in that moment it broke. And I didn't, I saw her as the grieving mother and I felt all my resentment disappear. And in that moment, the grief started, it's almost like a tap had been turned on and the grief started to cut through. Yeah, I can, I can well imagine. Um, wow, Malcolm. So I have so many questions now after you telling your story, um, but certainly the, I want to go back to patterning and suicide, but, sure. um, but certainly what you just described about facing your ex-wife and, and, and recognizing you hated her, standing, facing her still, and working through it, yes. whether or not she did, right? Maybe she did. But, In but, that moment, she did, but it didn't stay with her, but it right. stayed with me. Right. So, so, so this is really important for people that are listening, because uh, there's so much upheaval in the world. There are lots of people that are choosing to exit the planet via suicide. And, uh, and, and a lot of it, what you just described was you were slaying your dragon. You were facing her. You, it, it, it wasn't her so much. It was your hate. It was that mine. Was, right. That, was, that could damage your entire mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual systems forever if you hung on to that hatred yes. and anger and hurt. Yes. Which is why your book is yeah. right. Which is about slaying your dragons with compassion yes. for yes. ourselves first. Yes, exactly. And when I wrote the book, I thought I was writing a manual for other people, and which I was. But I was also writing a manual for myself. And I realized there had been practices that I'd been involved in, having trodden a spiritual path for more than thirty years. There were practices I'd been involved with, which had given me some ability to be able to stand in the face of the storm. And so, okay, so now let's just, I want to unwind that just a bit, Malcolm. So these were pra spiritual practices that you were practicing, right? Not just yes. teaching other people to do it. Yes. So this is the thing I want everybody to know. When you do, when you develop a spiritual practice for yourself and it is a practice, it becomes, it's ongoing. Exactly. Then you have skill sets already in place for when you hit these Horrific things that happen in life because exactly. we all got all of us got some something bad going on at some point because there's yeah. bumps in the journey of life. 
You got it. Spot on. Spot on. So, so then, Malcolm. Um, oh gosh, I have so many questions. Uh, let's go back to uh, that. You, you mentioned that uh, you with the support groups. Uh, first of all, support groups. We'll talk about that in a minute of how important that is for individuals, regardless of whether or not you got stuff going on. It's just important. I, I've always been in a support group, led a support group, but usually I do the work with the group because I need the work. Yeah. Um, but <clears throat> you mentioned in the um, uh, suicide support groups that you understood there was a patterning. So yeah. can you just talk briefly about that? So other people, if, if they're watching a loved one devolve, they can maybe support them before? Well, you know, it's really easy in hindsight to look back and go, oh my God, it was so obvious that this, this, was, this was a path that was opening up. But at the time, you don't think that's what's happening. Or I didn't think that was what was happening. I didn't even think about what that being happening. And she'd, Melissa had been a very, she'd worked for a company called Kids Company, which was a very famous organization in the UK dealing with very damaged children. And she was a caseworker. Oh, wow. So she was working with the, with the really kids right on the edge you know, had been abused and beaten and sexually abused and and uh, had all sorts of terrible things going on for them. And she was able to hold that space for other people. But there's something about when the mind starts to go and, and Melissa made a video before she died. And I've never seen this video to this day because Melissa's husband looked at the video and he said it brought him no closure at all. It was just her, her pain at, that actually, that she couldn't, um, she couldn't find her center anymore. Mm-hmm. And she'd lost her well-being. And, and there's something interesting that happened to me um, a little while ago. I went through a period where I had complete sleeplessness. It was a couple of months uh, where I was virtually sleepless for, for two months. Wow. And there was one day that happened during that two-month period where I felt like I was losing my mind. And I've never felt that in my life before. And I understood from that place, you could, there's a terror that you're never going to find your way back. And Melissa, 10 years earlier, had had a serious mental breakdown. She'd rung me from a, uh, she'd rung me one day and she said, hello, Dad, I'm in a lunatic asylum. And I said, very funny, Melissa. And she's passed the phone to the nurse. She was in an intensive care psychiatric unit where she was, she took a year getting through that. Yeah. And to all intents and purposes, she was out the other side of it. But she was so determined because she'd been drugged up to the eyeballs, they threatened her with electric shock treatments, all sorts of horrible things to happen during that period. She was determined that not, never to have medical treatment again. Oh. And so she, and I'm not saying medical treatment is good or bad. I'm saying that it's, it's, it has to be applied very skillfully. And I, in my, my journey to, to mix with people like Ronnie Lang, R.D. Lang, and Joe Burke, who founded the Arbors Association, who were some of the premier. Psych, uh, psych, uh, psychiatrists of our times who looked at this in a whole different light. But very often when people are put in psychiatric units, um, certainly then, and in fact, I've been involved with something called compassion mental health since then. When mm-hmm. they're put in psychiatric units, they are, they feel abused. They are, yeah. their power is taken away from them. I can well imagine. Okay. So, uh, even if we are not heading toward uh, a path of suicide, quite often during the course of a lifetime, we feel abused, we feel powerless. Yes. And um, so what, 
what can we do to not feel powerless? I mean, what, what, what is your practice? Well, what I've done is I've put 10, 10 practices in this book. And, and actually, it was, it was interesting because I've always hated books that go seven ways to do this, 10 ways to do that, nine ways to do that. But uh, I somehow managed to track that there were a number of different things that had taken me through this and things that I'd been refining in my life long before this happened and that I was able to bring into play. So I, I won't read you all 10, but for example, one of them is create a Sangha. Now, this is a Buddhist structure, which is about creating spiritual community. I have a regular, and have done for a long time, a regular Monday morning call with a close friend. And we take an hour, we take half an hour each, 20 minutes to talk and 10 minutes to have reflection and then switch it around. And we do that as a regular practice about what's going on in our lives. And our task is to give each other honest reflection, not to make each other feel better, but to actually challenge each other compassionately. Now that's been a practice I've done for years. I also have a triad, there's three of us that work together and it's in a similar process where we are exploring what's going on in our lives and getting reflection from the others of what might be the things we're not able to see. So we're supporting each other and actually finding our way through. Mm-hmm. I've been part of men's groups for 30 years um, and they're very valuable because it's a company of men. Often when men have difficulty talking about emotional things, I've run groups, I do still run groups and I've been participant in groups and there are places where there is a practice of speaking from the heart and of allowing our vulnerability to be visible. Yes, uh, and, and this is, uh, I, again, I, I just implore the listeners, if you do not have what Malcolm just described, a one-on-one, honest, trusting relationship, I, I highly suggest you develop that with a friend or a mentor. Um, but also in the group, because what I found over my years of doing being in groups and then also having what I call uh, prayer partners because I have a similar thing going on where there's a one-on-one and we share. Yeah. And what you begin to see in a group setting, at least in my experience, Malcolm, is that everybody in the group begins to reach a certain vibration. Exactly. Very similar. And so issues that one person may have, other people may begin to, it will crop up. And, and conversely, um, intentions that get set, if you're setting intentions, one person may say, this happened to me, I was in a group and uh, one person said, I need a new car. And we were all like, okay, we're going to just support you in that intention, spiritually, energetically. And by the next week, I had a new car. I didn't even know I was getting a new car. You know what I mean? And then, and she got a new car. So it was like, so things the well, I'm going to use the word universe, whatever source begins to work together to support us for our highest good. And if it's uncovering the stuff that is painful, that supports us in becoming more joyful. Yes. Yes. Yes, exactly. Because if we, if we avoid our suffering, we also avoid our joy. And so we have to then be able to find ways of dealing with our suffering. And one of the things I've done in this book is I've, I've set exercises, practices for people to do. So one of the chapters is called um, Allowing Your Suffering to Transform You. And at each of the end of, the, the end of each chapter, I've talked about how we might work with, with each particular practice that we're doing. So, um, and it, you know, again, it's building sangha, it's building community, but also walking in nature, talking to comfort trusted confidants, 
read the stories, get inspired by other people's stories who've, who've engaged in suffering. People like, for me, Viktor Frankl, who wrote Man's Search for Meaning. You know, he, he transformed suffering. And it was such a, a beautiful narrative that he wrote in that of his time in concentration camps. Listen to music that's been inspired by suffering. So for me, like, I love Leonard Cohen or um, Eric, Eric Clapton's Tears in Heaven, which he wrote on the death of his child. Nick Cave's Ghostine, and he also lost a child. And, you know, they've used their suffering creatively to find a way of transforming. And they become things, as you said, other people can hook into. And it then re responds beyond the personal to the interpersonal. So, Malcolm, I got I got to be straight up with you. When I saw that chapter, allowing your suffering to transform you, I started squirming. I'm like, I don't want to. I don't want to. And, you no, know, and, and I found when I was going through I, uh my pain, not bad, not as bad as what you've been through. But I found that I, there are certain, I went through a very contentious divorce. So the last thing I wanted to listen to was a love song, right? But I found what I call anthems that had come out the year I was going through divorce, that uh, that became my ringtone, you know? I am stronger than I think and all that stuff. So um, yeah, so. I want to read a quote from your from your book, and it's in the it's in the chapter uh, entitled "Slay Your Dragons with Compassion." Imagine that. Um, and you said so much of the suffering we inflict on ourselves and others comes from the inability to stay authentic, to communicate our reality while keeping judgment at bay, to stay in integrity with our lived experience while avoiding deception having the bravery to speak terrifying words, to do it with kindness is an art and life-changing practice. Okay, that that entire sentence paragraph is so chewy to me because any one of those things that you said are things that most people don't want to do. Gosh, did I write that? It's amazing. Yes, you did. You're so brilliant. I'll tell you, something, I'll tell you what's amazing is that I've written three books. This is my third book. And um, the other two books I took took four years to write. This, took, this book took seven months, and I really experienced Melissa's energy. Call it what you like. I'm not very mystical, and I, I don't do a lot of mystic thinking, but I felt her energy, and the book just flooded out of me. I, I love that. I love that, because it was meant to be. I, I do, and it was cathartic. You see, and, and this, is, this to me has been one, and I, at one stage I said to Ben Crabe, who's the guy who helped me write this, he, he was like the architect who helped, who created the structure for me to write it in. Um, uh, I said to him, do you know, if no one ever read this book and it never got published, it would still be worthwhile. I, I, I would concur. Yeah. I would concur. And yeah. re reading it myself, I'm like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. So... Can we talk about this idea of communicating uh, with integrity? At, because it, at one point you said you were not good at, uh, maybe I misunderstood, but you weren't good at saying what you were feeling or speaking up for yourself. I know, I was rubbish, Susan. You know, so no, you've got it spot on, actually. Okay, so my mum, bless her, bless her soul, she died last year, but um, a year before last. And um, she... Um, she would talk about white lies mm. and she would always avoid suffering through telling white lies. Mm. So all the time, I never knew what was true and what wasn't true. Yeah. And, uh, and so I started to 
I, I, I was brought up in my mother's knee, and then I, well, as I grew up into an adult, I started telling white lies to protect people, to avoid going to places where I would have to deliver difficult stuff. And, and it, I became mild in that. It's like I found, I felt like I was, I'd lost my core, my substance. And um, it was while um, I had a, a very powerful spiritual experience where I recognized that I needed to live in truth, that I had not been living in truth and I needed to live in truth. And, and it was, I made an internal vow, which doesn't mean that at every time, in every second, I'm always being 100% honest. I try and mostly I do. And sometimes I won't because I, I'll choose not to, but no longer for the white lies. I was counseling someone the other day. I was talking to this couple who um, he had an affair and she was furious and hurt and upset. And, um, and I, was, I was working with them he said, well, I tell white lies. I said, no, you don't, you tell lies. And I was able to say that because I've been there. But I have told lies and I still can tell lies, but it's rare now. Uh, but because I actually love try finding the place of truth that is sort of sensitive enough to be able to land with the other person, but not to try and destroy them. And there are two golden rules in, in Slay Your Dragons with Compassion, which I picked up from John Fowles' book, The Magus, which mm -hmm. I don't know if you've read that, but it's an no, extraordinary story about a young man on a spiritual journey to, and he's in, he is educated through life. And he finally comes to this wise woman at the end of his journey. And she said, my husband and I only ever had two rules. The first is we would always tell them to speak the truth with each other. Yep, that's easily done. And the second, and I couldn't remember it, and I've gone back over the, the Magus and couldn't remember, I thought I'd remembered it as never hurt another more than is necessary. Mm -hmm. And it's something close to that. Mm -hmm. But actually what it is is that, that actually if we make it our practice to never deliberately land a blow on someone through spite to get back at them because we, we, they hold a different stance to us, then there's a practice for us as well. We're not deliberately causing pain. And the truth is, if we're close to people, we're going to cause them pain at times because there's going to be places where we clash. Right. And that's that's part of relationship. And it's, and it's the gift of relationship in learning how to work through that yes. as opposed to building your resentment list so you can then batter the partner with your resentment list. Yes. But one of the paragraph or sub-chapters in that that caught my uh, eye is um, the painful truth is better than a comforting lie. And that's exactly what you're talking about. Yes. Well, William Blake said, um, truth honestly given is the mark of true friendship. Yeah. Yes. And so actually, you know, the practice of truth, I trust the people who speak truth to me. You know, the guy I do this Monday morning uh, dyad with the pairing that we do on a Monday morning, he, he's quite ruthless in his truth but he's he has enough compassion and I know he cares about me but if he says something difficult to me there's something for me to look at mm -hmm. and, and I want that I don't want to go oh yeah I'm having an argument with, a, with my ex-wife or something or other I don't want someone saying oh well, you're definitely right and they're, they're wrong I don't want that I want to see where I can shift my perspective so that to me Malcolm is uh is what, this is what I encourage my listeners and my clients is to find that place where you can find your edge and develop, have an ongoing 
consciousness growth pattern. Does that make sense? Yes. So that you're constant, not constantly, but so you're always attuned to the idea that I choose to grow my consciousness, my awareness, which then in my mind says, I choose to grow my compassion, my love, my happiness, because if we're, maybe you and I are just kind of like-minded, but I, I would much rather clean up my own uh, garbage than walk around carrying it. And, uh, and I've always been that way. And so consequently, I've, I've, I've been the person that says, that speaks what I perceive as truth to individuals. And sometimes it lands really well. And other times I walk away going, oh my gosh, why did I say that? I should have just kept my mouth shut. But oftentimes when truth is spoken, truth with a capital T, not I think this about you, truth. Exactly. It, it, it resonates with the individuals that are on the receiving end. It, it changes up energetically something within the individual, whether or not they stop to look at it, right? Oftentimes yeah. they will, because it arrests. Arrests them to go, wait a minute. Yeah. And, and, you, and you talk about, okay, so I'm flipping it just again, Malcolm, but in the book, you also talk about the ricochet effect. Yes. So let's speak about that because there's, when you're speaking truth to someone there, what you're talking about is with compassion that takes a, a, a practice of allowing the judgmental mind, the, the ego driver to, to soften. So you're in your intuitive yes. can come through, but sometimes the ricochet effect is, the ricochet effect is extraordinary. It's, it's a term I invented. I was very pleased with it. So it's, it's an original term. It. And, and it, it says it like it is. Basically, someone will say something, you'll think nothing's going on for you, and suddenly, bang, you're in a, it's opened a door inside you because you carry, you know, we carry a lot of the same patternings. There aren't that many different life stories. There's the different stories where we, we suffer and where we, we, where we grow and we're educated. But there's not a million stories. We're not all so so different from each other. You know, we're human beings with all of the foibles and glories. And I mean, Eckhart Tolle used to say that if you want to see the best and worst of humanity, look in a mirror. So, um, you know, it's all there. And I could, I don't know what our timing's like, but if we've got three or four minutes, I could read a story from the Rick because this is the most powerful story in the book if you're up for- I would love it. A three minute story. This is a beautiful story. And this blew my mind. And in fact, what I did, when I wrote this is that I actually, um, I was working with this woman in a group. She's still in one of my groups now, actually. And um, I actually said to her, um, I want to interview you because I want to get this absolutely right. Because I think this is one of the most powerful stories I've ever heard. So um, I'm going to read you a moving story, if that's all right, on the Ricochet Effect. I have my tissue. Good, you'll probably need it for this one. So this is called Raj, Susan and Connor. Raj was in one of my one-off groups in the beautiful holiday destination of Etsitsa in Greece. He'd been married for 10 years, and as his wife approached the menopause, their relationship changed. Her sex drive was less, but his stayed the same. He found the withdrawal of the sexual connection difficult and painful. They had sex from time to time, which alleviated his frustration briefly and drew the sting out of the situation. It feels like a mercy fuck when they do it, I thought to myself. I hope it's all right to use that word over here. It's, uh... it's fine. Okay, thank you. Raj and his wife shared their lives in the care of their children amiably. He was relentlessly positive and rarely showed any chink of vulnerability. 
He appeared almost aloof and demonstrated a practiced amiability. He spent hours in the gym and had his own import-export business, which he ran from home. However, without touching their relationship, there was a huge gap for Raj. It's not the sex, I can deal with that. It's the emotional connection from skin on skin. The lack of it drives me mad. It's so painful, it's like the intimacy has been sucked away. His face crumpled and tears appeared in his eyes. What would you like from the group, I asked him. He looked around and engaged with others in a way I'd never seen him do before. He made genuine eye contact with people in the circle and held it receptively. He allowed the others to see him in a place of vulnerability, which normally only his wife would have access to. I'd really love it if someone would touch my face. I don't mind who, anyone who wants to, said spontaneously. It was a difficult and emotionally raw ask. But three people stood up, sat down next to him in the center of the circle and gently stroked his face. It was a tender moment appearing seemingly from nowhere. After some time, a soft crying emerged from the other side of the circle. Susan, a gentle Irish woman, was sobbing. Raj basked in touch for a couple more minutes against the backdrop of Susan's sobs. When I sensed Raj felt content, I turned my attention towards Susan, who was being comforted by the person next to her. Would you like to share what's going on? I asked her. The words tumbled out of her. Five years ago, I met the love of my life in the gym. His name was Connor. I know this sounds really corny, but in that moment when our eyes met, we fell in love in a way I'd never experienced before. And that love continued for the whole five years I was with him. He was an Ironman triathlete, had two kids from a previous marriage. And I saw such a beautiful soul inside this powerful muscular body. He later told me when he met me, he saw light shining from the top of my head. We were inseparable from that moment and moved in together a few months later. It was the purest love I've ever felt. This to me was a rarity where falling in love seamlessly morphed into the art of loving. The group's attention was wrapped. Three years later, Connor started getting pains in his stomach and went to his doctor who assured him there was no serious problem and diagnosed acid reflux. This didn't feel right, and despite having a chest X-ray, which showed us that it wasn't lung cancer, it took two years before his doctor X-rayed his stomach and found a massive cancer there. I was furious because it had been obvious that the problem was in his stomach, and it took so long for them to finally investigate it. Connor knew he was going to die, and he lost weight quickly. I'd go to bed praying, "Take me rather than him, for his children's sake," said Susan. From the October di cancer diagnosis until the following April when he died, his body was in agony. Susan never flinched from being by his side, and here's the ricochet, and she found that stroking his face was a joy for both of them. Every time she touched him, he would smile at her through his pain and say, I love you. For the last month of his life, he was in a hospice which overlooked the Steve Guillaume Mountains and the Keys shopping mall, where Susan had watched Connor perform his first Ironman triathlon. The nurses had put a fold-down bed next to Connor's so they could sleep facing each other at night. They spent time listening to songs and selecting which ones would be played at his funeral. One day he'd just chosen the sixth and final song, the Celtic football anthem, over and over, Celtic song. Connor was a Celtic fan. And as they listened, she felt him dying. As he took his last breath, she slid her hand under his head and whispered in his ear, Connor, the windows are open. The mountains are outside. Fly out of your body and meet me on the other side. Then another ricochet reverberated around the group and one by one, four of us shared a story about the loss of a loved one. I shared Melissa's story with tears pouring down my face. The entire group was, utter, was powerfully present. 
a response to the clarity and dignity of the grief, and the atmosphere in the room was calm, tender, and electric. Susan turned to me at the end of the session. Thank you, I feel so much lighter. I never, been, I never dreamed I'd be able to share this here. You created a space to heal my soul. It felt so safe to express my heart. As Susan observed Raj surrendering to the touch of those who supported him, she was thrown into the memory of her own story. It was a powerful ricochet she wasn't expecting, and it released a depth of feeling she'd been able to un unable to access since Connor's death. As others in the group witnessed the purity of Susan's love and loss, they too were ricocheted into their own loves and losses. The ricochet effect is usually unexpected, as we all experienced that day. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Wow. And, and that story is such a, a beautiful illustration, Malcolm, of how we can each support and help each other when we are coming from compassion and, and just willingness to listen deeply to another human being. I knew when I heard, when I saw that in action in front of me, I said, I said to Susan, if you don't want this, don't, 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 don't do it. But I, I think there's a most important story here for other people. And I'm just in the process of writing this yes. book. And she said, definitely use it. I will, I'll do whatever it takes to get this into the book. Awesome. For me, it's a great teaching story. It's a brilliant teaching story. It and is. I say that not because I, I, because I wrote it, because I didn't. She, she wrote it. She brought that story through. Yes. But, but because it's so poignant. And I think that it's common, right? Yes. It's not, it's not just one person's experience. It's a common experience. And I, and I really believe that we, like you said earlier, there's not that many different stories. No. It's just the experiences might look a little different, but we all have a similar story. And it just yeah. illustrates how we're all connected. And we're, you know, really the compassion, leading with compassion leading with love is the thing that can heal all of us together. Yeah. Malcolm Stern, what? <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you, uh, I really, but I want to say thank you for listening to your soul and writing the cathartic book called Slay Your Dragons with Compassion that I think is gonna help other people to, to release it. Because there's other stories in this book that are, are heartfelt and touching and, and illustrative. So I, I just thank you so much for- Thank you. And, and you know, I, I've, I've written basically a, a compendium of life. And the amazing thing is that the people I sent the book to, Eckhart Tolle, Elizabeth Gilbert, um, Craig David, um, Jack Cornfield have written beautiful endorsements of the book because they were touched by the human stories. It's not that I'm writing something so necessarily wise, but I'm writing something that that's our story, our yes. history. Right, right. And and it, having it be our story is um, so timely right now with everything that is going on globally uh, yeah. on all those different levels. It's just timely to recognize that it's our story. It's our story. We're all in this together now as well. And yes. In a time like this in, in history. Ever. Yeah. And it, it, only when we realize and recognize that it is our story and each individual can up-level the narrative, if you will, by doing 
the healing work that they are called to do within themselves. Because I find that when one individual heals themselves from the inside out, it radiates, it multiplies. Yes. And it activates other individuals' uh, desires and willingness to heal themselves. And, and then there's that ripple effect. Exactly. That's right. There is. So thank you so much. So once again, so uh, do you have a website, Malcolm? Yeah, malcolmstern.com. Okay. And they can get, people can get the book through the website or through Amazon? No, they can't. They can, they can get it through Amazon or Barnes & Noble, I think, in the U.S. as well. Okay. So, um, yeah. Awesome. Uh, the, and, and it's called, I'm just going to say it again, Slay Your Dragon with Compassion. And then the subtitle, 10 Ways to Thrive Even When It Feels Impossible. So, Malcolm Stern, once again, thank you for thriving. And thank you for surviving through your trauma in order to be a light for other people in the world. I just deeply appreciate you. Thank you so much, Susan. It's lovely. It's been lovely talking with you. Yes, thank you. So I'm just going to end with, and so it is, namaste. Namaste.